You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. We wild the child. Here is your host, Emily. Hey, welcome to episode 22 of the Untaming Podcast. I have both my kids sitting here next to me while I'm recording. Would you like to say hello? Hello. (laughs) You know, my least favorite part of doing this podcast is the promoting of it. I would so much prefer it if I was like, hey, I've produced this deeply researched content all for free, just come and get it. But sadly, I have to promote it so people know where to find this. So I'm super slack at posting to social media. And even in real life, just this week, I went along to some local unschooling groups, met some really fun families who I'm sure would love this podcast. But I don't want to be that person who sells myself like I'm just connecting with people to be a fake salesperson, so I didn't tell anyone about it. My husband suggested a good way to get more people to hear about it is to ask you, the listeners, to write reviews for it on iTunes. Apparently, the more reviews, not just ratings, but written reviews the podcast has, the more that algorithm works to suggest the podcast to other people. So, please write a review. And for the people who already have, thank you. I'm going to start reading a couple of reviews out each week. Maybe that'll be motivation for you to write one, but, you know, only if you want to. Here is one from the Whiskey Road Homestead. Listening out here in the wild parts of Washington State, such a wonderful podcast, and you are truly speaking to my mama's soul. Can't wait to listen to your next conversation. Thank you for sharing these messages. So that one was from the United States, and here is one from Australia. The name is MeZNut. I'm not totally sure how that's supposed to be pronounced. I found this podcast to be extremely fascinating. In a world that has been conditioned to provide for the rich, we have forgotten the basis of being human. And as a mum of two, I started to reflect on my own parenting style. A real awakening to what it really is like for our children. I'm a fan already. So thank you, Risky Ro- uh, Whiskey Road Homestead and me, Z Nut Z. I really appreci- appreciate you writing the review. It makes me so happy to read that you listeners out there really do value this content and acknowledge the effort that I put in behind the scenes to make it possible for you to just listen. So please, please write a review and tell people in your life about this podcast. Share it with people you think might be interested in this content or maybe with people who you would like to be interested. Oh, and in addition to Facebook and Instagram, I've also just set up a Twitter account too, if that's your preferred method of the suffocating void, as my favorite anarchist writer, Kevin Tucker, calls social media. Here's a quick message from our sponsor. You can spend the next 30 seconds thinking about what you'll write in your review. I'm saying this with a wink. The last episode was with Gail Tully, the creator of Spinning Babies, an excellent resource for any pregnant or soon-to-be pregnant people. I recorded an interview today on the Brewer Eating Plan, which will probably come out in another two months. The Brewer Eating Plan and Spinning Babies would be my top two recommendations for a healthy baby, mother, pregnancy and birth. The next episode to air on the 6th of September is with internationally board-certified lactation consultant Mary Fransal. 
and I think I'm going to title that one Breastfeeding 101 because it really does cover everything you need to know about breastfeeding. In addition to promoting the podcast, I also hate to bore you too much by talking about myself, so I try to keep these intros as short as possible so you can get straight to the content with our speaker of the day. So that's more than enough of my rambling today. Here is Dr. Marie-Claire Arietta. Forty-one-year-old microbiologist Dr. Marie-Claire Arietta was born in and grew up in Costa Rica. She currently lives in Calgary, Canada with her husband Esteban and their two children Marisol and Emiliano. Claire originally trained as a medical microbiologist. She became very interested in the concept of the gut as the engine of diseases that occur in organs far away from the gut. Claire completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the laboratory of Dr. Brett Finlay, who has pioneered many studies in the field of the human microbiome. Together they wrote the book, Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. Currently, Claire is an assistant professor in the departments of physiology, pharmacology and paediatrics at the University of Calgary and a child health and wellness researcher. Last night she had eight to eight and a half hours of sleep and for lunch today she had pasta with basil, pesto and honey roasted beets on top, the cucumbers her children didn't finish and some sparkling water. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me here. So I contacted you after reading your book, Let Them Eat Dirt. So the microbiome is still such a new field of study and there are very few resources out there for parents trying to understand the impact of the microbiome on their children's lives. So thank you so much for writing it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for reading it. (laughs) So the microbiome, how do you briefly explain to the layperson what it is? So the microbiome is this pretty large collection of microbes that we all carry with us Um, and they get to live in all the surfaces of our bodies that are in contact with the outside world. So think of your skin, um, your, your, the outside of your eyes, as well as your gastrointestinal tract. And that goes, of course, from your mouth till your anus. Even though this is a tube that's technically inside of our bodies, the, the inner side of this tube is very much outside with, with, the, with the outside. Hmm. My own uh, comprehension is how interconnected the microbiome is with the immune system to the point where I think I confuse the two in my head. Like, so how influential is the microbiome on the immune system or is it the immune system that influences the microbiome? It happens both ways, although most of what we know now is that the influence of the microbes on our immune system is a bit bigger. That's not to say that the immune system doesn't influence the microbes. But um, let's start by, by defining how our immune system works in a very simple way. Mm-hmm. The, the immune system, the way it works is by identifying self from non-self. And that is really much the logic that it uses to work and to recognize what it should 
and it should not attack. So, of course, it should not attack our own bodies, although that may happen in some diseases. It should only attack those things that are foreign to, to our body. So what is foreign to our body? There's many things, but microbes very much are foreign to our body. And our immune system has many different ways to try and and. and and protect us from from what microbes can do. What's really interesting here is that there's a lot of microbes, the vast majority of them, that have adapted to make the immune system not react too strongly to them. In a way, these microbes, and many, many of which are part of our microbiome, almost become self because the immune system will not react strongly or or negatively towards them. That's not to say that that um, they're, from a molecular point of view, the same as, as our body. They're clearly not. But what is really interesting is that our immune cell uses the signals coming from these microbes to mature and to develop. In a way, they learn to say, ha, huh, this microbe is a microbe, but it's a nice one. It's not one that is going to um, provoke harm. Um, and this other microbe, say SARS-CoV-2, is not a nice microbe, and we should definitely mount an immune response towards it. So microbes definitely have this teaching, this training ability that is critical for the development of our immune system to the point that we now know if we were to develop without microbes and there are animals that do this in, in of course, experimental conditions, our immune system does not develop properly. It is very sloppy. It doesn't fight infections well, and it can actually lead to autoimmune diseases. So this training by, by microbes is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that makes me think of something like sleep. So we know if we have just one night of poor sleep, our immune system is compromised. So do you know if there's evidence of that lack of sleep um, or f- like affected by the microbiome? Um, not so much in the sense that the microbes can affect our sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if a few years from now we learned that was the truth, but of course that, that, is, that is not the case, not that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know is that microbes change depending on our circadian rhythms. And this is, they think, it's not so much related to sleep or being awake per se, but the fact that we're eating or not eating. And this makes a lot of sense because what are microbes in our gut doing? The very, the, the, the first thing that they do and the, mo- the main reason what, why they're there is that we feed them and we water them. Um, they're not altruistic in the sense they're just going to help us develop. They're, they're there for a reason and, and because we feed them. This community of microbes may look one way right after we eat, but then if we are fasting for a long period of time, this community will change until we eat again. Mm-hmm. So there's this pattern of, of uh, circadian rhythms of microbes that uh, that follow the, the way we eat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that clarification out of the way, let's talk about the beginning of life. Can bacteria influence us before birth? They definitely do. So we know now that 
um, it doesn't seem that, that we are colonized by microbes when we are inside of our mother's womb. It, it is still considered a sterile environment, unless there's, of course, an infection or, or there's rupture of the membranes or whatnot. But our own mother's microbiome, so the microbes that live in the mom's gut, these are microbes that are constantly producing stuff metabolites, we call them. And these substances can not only go from the gut into the bloodstream of the mom, but they can very much cross the, the placental barrier in a sense that metabolites or substances produced in our mom's gut microbiome influence the baby's development. Now, these experiments, of course, are really hard to do. There's there's a few ways you can you can do this in, in animals that are devoid of, of microbes. But what we the little that we know is that these substances are quite influential in the way the fetal immune system develops. Hmm. So is that uh, like the mic uh, the mother's microbiome affecting the fetus? Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in your book you said that the number of vaginal lactobacillus increases dramatically. Can you tell us how the type of birth can have an effect on a child's microbiome? Yes. So as I mentioned before, um, we do not really have microbes when we, before we're born. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we are born, we get bombarded with microbes because we live in a microbial world and and nature sees it to it that if we're born vaginally that the vagina which is by the way very close to to the anus um they're they're both sites in our body that have very high concentrations of microbes so in a way um the way mammals birth ensures that the very second that we're born we get covered in a large amount and a large diversity or number of of different microbes. And of course, we can be born either via C-section or vaginally. And of course, if we're born via C-section, we're not going to encounter this very high load, this high gulp, if you want, of of microbes. There's, of course, um, cross-contamination with fecal microbes because the areas are so close and it's also very frequent that that, uh, certain moms can defecate during, during birth. And even though it's out sounds quite unappealing this is we think it's a it's a natural evolutionary strategy to acquire the right microbes which of course are not the ones that that would be acquired initially if we're born via c-section so i've heard people uh, yeah i've heard of people say that babies born by cesarean unintentionally receive microbes from the doctor who delivered them rather than the ones they would have naturally naturally receive from their mother is do you know if this is true well it is true that that um the the microbes more commonly found in uh, babies delivered by c-section are skin microbes but they may very well come from our own mother's skin in fact it's more likely that that's the case because usually the doctor will be gloved (laughs) and wearing a gown whereas in many cases moms aren't. Uh, but, but yes, there's a lot more skin-type microbes and just microbes that we commonly find in, in surfaces, like in, in, in the air. And they will stay there for a number of days before 
other microbes can come in. And, and what we think is that even though eventually, after a few months, um, the microbiome of a baby delivered by C-section starts looking very similar from one delivered vaginally. We think that those differences that happen in the first few weeks and months are critical when it comes to those interactions with our immune system, as well as other systems in the body. Hmm. So that makes me wonder, is there a difference uh, from a microbial perspective between a vaginal birth in a hospital and a birth at home? Do the environments play a microbial role? They do. And there's a few studies that have shown that home births, births come with different microbes. And it is not completely unexpected not i mean for one thing of course that the the microbial environment in a home will be different than the microbial environment in a hospital being than the one your own home you're going to share more microbes with your own home than with a hospital but also hospitals come with more interventions, right? You may get um, antibiotics, whereas you are very unlikely to get them if you are having a home birth. So there's other aspects there that, that, that explain why those babies will have slight differences, although the differences are not that big. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about a baby who is born in the water? Can the water prevent the baby from receiving some of these microbes? It can't really prevent them because microbes are everywhere, including in the water, but it can definitely wash them off. And there was a neat small study that showed that to me, not very surprising. If you wash uh, something, you're going to dilute or you're going to reduce the number of microbes. So, so um From the microbial perspective, this is, of course, not taking into account any other perspective, Mm -hmm. but a water birth will definitely dilute or will reduce the amount of microbes that baby, in a way, should be getting initially. Okay. So you have a lot of valuable information on antibiotics in your book. So my simplistic understanding is antibiotics don't just kill the bad bacteria, they get the good bacteria too. But I, I know there's so much more to it than that. So what what can you tell us? Well, antibiotics are very important drugs. And um, without them, I mean, there's no question about it. E- even the, the expected lifespan of, of most humans would be heavily impacted if, if we didn't have them. Um, with that said, antibiotics are products that have been available for, I mean, since forever. Antibiotics, we call them a human discovery, but but we just discovered that they existed. Uh, these have been produced by, ever since microbes existed as a way to fight other microbes. And, and one of their characteristics is that they tend not to be very specific in the way they act. And they are designed to kill a whole bunch of microbes at once. So when a baby or anyone takes a microbe, uh, an antibiotic for uh, gastroenteritis, let's say you ate something that didn't really sit very well and, and, and now you have an infection, this antibiotic is not only going to kill the, the bacterium that is giving you trouble, it's, only, it's also going to kill a whole bunch of other ones. Um, and, and there's now efforts, but they're very, very nascent to create a lot more specific antibiotics. But for the most part, all the antibiotics that we have on the market today, they're very general and they will kill a whole bunch more microbes than the ones that they are intended to kill. Hmm. So if 
if all of a good type of bacteria is killed, how can it come back? Yeah, so well, not all of the good type of bacteria will get killed, but a good proportion of them will get killed. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on when this may happen and how much antibiotic you take. Let's say you are very, very unfortunate and you have to take antibiotics for months and there's a few conditions where this needs to happen. It is very likely that if you're an adult and you have to take antibiotic for months, your microbiome is going to look a lot different even permanently after that because it was too much of a hit. But if you had to take about one week of antibiotics, it's also very likely that you're going to bounce back to what it was. This is if you're an adult. If you're a child, especially a very young one, the situation may be different because this microbial ecosystem, this microbiome is still very new. And from ecology, we have learned that new ecosystems are not very stable. They're, They're not quite as resilient to, to challenges uh, like, a, like an antibiotic. So if a baby has to take an antibiotic, especially very early on, or especially if it's long lasting, then odds are higher that this community will be permanently changed. So it really it depends on, on when you take it and how much you take. Hmm. Am I correct in understanding that antibiotics don't kill off fungi so following a course of antibiotics with the depletion of the good and bad bacteria the fungi have an opportunity to feed on the dead bacteria and multiply to a point where issues like overgrowth and fungal infections occur for sure that can happen more so in little babies and i think both parents they they may have seen this where where you have uh, either oral thrush or baby may have may experience a diaper rash after um, antibiotics and these are most likely caused by yeasts that overgrow now yeast don't have really the upper hand in the gut in normal conditions. Bacteria are a lot more adept to live or more fit to live in this environment. So in most cases, soon after the antibiotic are gone, bacteria are going to take over those yeast. But yes, during during a period of time, there is a risk of a, a, a yeast infection in the gut. And, and in some cases, especially if, if a baby's immune system is not very mature, that could become an, an infection and it needs to be treated. But you're absolutely right. Antibiotics only kill certain bacteria. Hmm. Okay. So I have a bit of a long anecdote here for my next question. So please bear with me. Um, When my daughter was about eight months, she injured her hands, and so I was cleaning them and bandaging them at home. But then two days later, she developed a fever and became drowsy, and I worried that she'd developed an infection. So we took her to the Mm -hmm. hospital, and this is when we lived in Portugal, so my language skills were pretty uh, rudimentary. Uh, The first thing they did was clean and bandage her hands, and needless to say, she was not very happy. There was a lot of crying. And then that mixed with the fever meant she was very red and distraught by the time they were finished. And that was when she was checked over by a paediatrician. And the person translating for me said that while it was possible the fever could just be a normal delayed reaction to damaging her hands and not a sign of infection, but then the paediatrician had looked her over and reached the conclusion that she had an ear infection. 
And I had seen the paediatrician look in her ears a few times as though she wasn't initially convinced, but nevertheless, my daughter was prescribed antibiotics. And the whole, the whole drive home from the hospital, I was tormented with knowing how much, you know, antibiotics could affect her young body. And also my serious doubts that she even had an ear infection because she'd never even had a cold at that point. But then on the other hand, there was that what if, you know, that sliver of doubt. So ultimately, I decided to wait a day or two to start the antibiotics to see if there really were any signs of an infection. And the next day, she was back to her normal happy self. So I didn't end up using the antibiotics at all. So I'm bringing up this anecdote because I really appreciated that you touched on this topic in your book. And I wondered if you could share more on overdiagnosis of ear infections and the overprescription of antibiotics. Yes, um, ear infections are one of the main causes that lead to an antibiotic prescription as you experience with your daughter and so many other parents, including ourselves, experienced. It really depends on when you are. There, there's been quite a lot of, of um, advancement in, in antibiotic stewardship and how, how less, I guess, uh, doctors are, are prescribing, pediatricians especially, prescribing antibiotics compared to only a decade ago. So there's a lot of, of uh, good training that has happened in this regard. And, and in many pediatric societies, for specifically for ear infections, now recommend that the wait-and-see approach, which sounds like it's exactly what you did, you mm. waited for a day or two. This, of course, changes depending on the age of the child. If the child is really young, you cannot afford to wait-and-see mm. because of the risk of a system of an infection becoming systemic really rapidly, and this is because very young babies, their immune systems are not really well-developed. Uh, but with older babies, babies, um, this is what clinicians now do. They wait for a day or two. And if the baby is still rapidly crying and, and complaining about their ear pain and, and fever, then um, then you go and, and, and treat them with an antibiotic. It's, 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 very, it's a very hard decision, though. Um, as a parent, you want to treat your child right away and you want to make them feel better at the same time like you did. You, you worry about the, the parallel side effect of, of, of the antibiotic on, on the baby's microbiome. Mm. Yeah, just last week I heard of some findings from a large longitudinal study on growing up here in New Zealand. Yes. And something that really stood out to me was that 97% of children have received at least one course of antibiotics in their first thousand days of life and with a median of eight courses. Yeah, oh. that's actually quite high. I, I'm surprised for for um, for being New Zealand, I was not aware. In the United States, for example, which is one of the most overly prescribed countries when it comes to many meds, including antibiotics, I think the average for up to age five is 11 courses. So eight oh, wow. for the first 1,000, that will be three years. I guess that would be similar to that. Mm. I would have expected maybe the New Zealand, it would have been a bit more conservative. But yes, unfortunately, it is the case. There's a lot of antibiotics that are given to babies. And, and that, of course, has been um, starting to, to reduce. So it, it is changing. Of course, the change in this type of thing is, is not as fast as we like. And at the same time, antibiotics continue will continue to be used because of the fact of the matter is that babies do get infections. I mean, this is when we get infected the most. Um, so odds are that this is the period of time when we're going to need antibiotics the most as well. 
there is though some nice evidence that just came out, and this is from a Canadian study um, of, of children, where they were able to show that clearly antibiotic use is going down in the past decade. And interestingly, with it, the risk of developing asthma has conservatively, but significantly gone down too. Hmm. Wow. So there is a bit of hope. I think as, as um, uh, there's better training in, in, in the way these diseases are managed and also better diagnostics in how um, a, a laboratory can help and, and ha- can help the, 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 the clinical diagnosis of a bacterial infection or a non-bacterial infection. So I think science will, will help with, with um, antibiotic stewardship measurements. Yeah. So I want to get deeper into probiotics later in our talk, but for children who truly do have to go through a course of antibiotics, is there any benefit to taking probiotics alongside them? It's interesting. Only a few years ago, I would have said yes for sure. Um, there's um, there's some evidence that will that will suggest that. I think a stronger evidence for probiotics really is in the prevention of diarrheal infections. If and when you're going to go to a place when these are common, say if you're traveling, there's pretty good evidence that I, as a scientist, would say, yeah, I, I, I would do it. Now, there's ha- there have been pretty good studies that have come out in the past two years, one of them fairly large, thousands of babies in which they did this. They, they looked at... Um, the effect of probiotics when babies have to take antibiotics. And to tell you the truth, I was not convinced, and neither were the authors, that the effects were beneficial. Not from the clinical point of view, in the sense that it didn't seem that that um, the babies got better faster. And also, it didn't seem that the microbiome went back to what it would have been. Um, so again, not to say that probiotics are bad, there's likely nothing wrong in, in taking them. I'm just a lot more hesitant at recommending them now because of the new evidence. I don't think they are this panacea option that will really improve the way our microbiome looks. And there's certain reasons for that. We now understand that the the probiotics that are recommended in in different, different circumstances, including when you take an antibiotic, they're really not that's the species that are being impacted or harmed by the use of the antibiotics. So the the probiotic species or or bugs that that are used now, I think will change in the future based on this information that what we have. And then, yes, then we can say that makes more sense, that the sign of this probiotic really follows what happens to those good microbes after we take an antibiotic. But really what we're doing now, we're taking um, huge doses of lactobacilli, for example. And it doesn't seem that that in the gut of a child or an adult for that matter, when we take an antibiotic, the main bacteria that go down or that are harmed by the antibiotic are the lactobacilli. So um, I'm a lot more cautious with recommending probiotics now. That's not to say, though, and we can talk more about that later on about diet. There's a lot to say about the the uh, health, general health benefits of, um, for example, increasing the intake of fermented foods, which can mm-hmm. have probiotics in them. But that's different than recommending a probiotic when you take an antibiotic. Yeah. 
Okay. Recently, I've been aware of some young babies in my extended family who a decade a decade or so ago would probably have been prescribed antibiotics for their ailments, but instead they've been given steroids. Do you have any insight into steroids on the microbiome in young children? Um, there's not so much that have been done. There may be some. There are a few studies, and and there may be some. Um, effects, but nothing compared to the effect of a, of a, of an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, breast milk next. In particular, I enjoyed reading about oligosaccharides in your book. Can you share more about this with the listeners? Yes. Yeah, so breast milk is this really complex mixture of uh, nutrients and other substances that mammals produce to feed our young. And really the the biochemistry within breast milk, it's quite fascinating. And we haven't really finished really characterizing what's in it. One of the things that we have learned is that there's this um, component, it's a type of sugar or carbohydrate known as milk oligosaccharides. And in the case of humans, it's called human milk oligosaccharides or HMOs. And what's really fascinating about these substances is that they have no nutritional value for the baby. So the baby cannot digest them and absorb them. These are substances that can only be uh, broken up or metabolized or digested by the baby's microbiome. And the other fascinating aspect is that the amount of HMOs in breast milk is quite important. So about 20% of the total carbohydrate component of breast milk are HMOs. And they are present in every mammalian species that has been studied. So this is a pretty conserved, widespread strategy that has been shaped during mammalian evolution um, that is definitely telling us that microbes are important because the way evolution works is that you're not going to spend energy uh, over a course of, of millions of, of years in a substance that doesn't have a good use for your biology, right? And it, it definitely brings home the message that we need to feed a baby's microbes in order to feed the baby correctly. And there were other components of breast milk in your book that really interested me too, like uh, maternal antibodies, lactoferrin, lysosome, and growth factors. Can you share the wonderful roles these play? Yes, and and this is only um, only a, a selected group of of them. Um, I encourage people to read more about breast milk components and the science behind them because it's truly fascinating. Things like antibodies, of course, more people are familiar with their nature. Antibodies are immune factors that can fight off uh, bad microbes. They can clearly bind to them and block them, physically block them from trying to attack a baby. But there's things like lactoferrin and lysozyme as well. Both of them can also be uh, natural antibiotics. And in the case of lactoferrin, the way it works is that it can steal nutrients or, or, or uh, iron um, that um, microbes can use. And, and lysozyme can, can literally burst microbes open. So there's different strategies that are clearly 
um, trying to protect a baby from bad microbes. And are any of these present in formula? Um, some of them are now being introduced. There's now different types of HMOs that are being introduced in some formulas. Unfortunately, trying to synthesize the majority of these is really too complicated. In many cases, we don't even have the technology for it. In other cases, it will be completely, it will be prohibitively expensive to, to add this to, to formula. So there's now some formulas that do include, I think I believe is one type or two types of HMOs, the vast majority of them, no. I mean, formula, it's a very sound um, form of nutrition. From, from just the nutritional point of view, uh, if you don't take into account the, the microbes, it's a pretty complete food and and formula has you know saved many lives and allows many babies to grow who otherwise wouldn't be able to without that creation of formula so i've never been a proponent to to try and um bath mouth <laughs> formula because yeah. it definitely has a, a place in, in society and it has mm. improved quite dramatically from what it was before. But clearly trying to mimic such a complex um, substance like breast milk from the biochemical point of view is going to take, I mean, centuries, if, if, if ever possible, to, to recreate something as complex as, as breast milk. Yeah. What insight do you have to share with us on the newborn gut? Um in general, the newborn gut is a somewhat developed, somewhat undeveloped niche or environment that is able to harbor a ton of microbes at a time where this baby is going to kickstart all types of development from immune development metabolic development, neurological development, you name it. Never do we develop more rapidly and more drastically than when we're a newborn and during that first year. And the gut is a critical organ for this for two reasons. The first one, this is where we ingest our energy. This is where we get energy from. Um, the gut is designed to extract energy from our foods. And the second one is the fact that it is this very large, super large surface that can harbor trillions and trillions of microbes, the majority of which are going to be creating substances. And the gut itself as an organ has a whole bunch of different strategies to absorb these substances and make them part of our own physiology and a part of that critical development. When do we want to start introducing food to the newborn gut? So the newborn gut, um, for the most part, is ready for other foods than uh, breast milk between the four to six month mark for babies that are born at term. And so I find it curious that you've said four to six months. It just sounds earlier than what I've heard. Can you share what the signs are for readiness? 
Yes. So there's there's quite a bit of development when it comes to that. That question would have been asked five years ago. It would have been after six months of age, whereas now it's known that some babies do show signs of being ready, not only of being ready, but also requiring more nutrients and more calories than the ones that can be um, provided by breast milk. For most babies, it is close to the six-month mark, but now most pediatric societies, including many in Europe, including the Canadian one, and including the U.S. one, have adopted the four- to six-month mark because there's clearly some babies that are ready faster. And, yeah, so how do we know when a baby is ready? For sure. And there are and, and, and pediatric societies are are pretty clear as to what the signs of readiness are. Um, and, and one of them has to do with even motor control. Can the baby actually sit up and hold his or her head? Is, is the baby showing signs, physical signs that they want your food? Do they are when you're eating next to them? Do they launch for your your fork or even for the apple that you're trying to read. So even even cues like that are, are very critical for the decision on when babies are ready. Mm-hmm. And does the tongue reflex play a role in that? Yes, of course, that's another key one as well. Baby needs to learn how to swallow. And that of course happens with a test usually when you place a tiny speck of mushed food onto baby's mouth does baby swallow it or it is the reflex to spit it out only okay we have uh we have two dogs so i was really pleased to see what you had to say about the influence of pets on our microbiota can you talk about how owning a pet changes the composition and diversity of our microbiomes yeah, this is quite interesting. Um, at the same time, if, if you have a pet, also not very surprising. Dogs, and this is usually only for dogs that need to be, that, that walk outside all, all the time, or not all the time, but, but, but regularly, they make your house dirtier. Like it's, you know when you live in a, in a place <laughs> where there's a dog that lives there, right? They're good yeah. at that. Um, and of course, with dirt and with the outside, there comes microbes. So um, dogs are good at bringing the outside into your house and microbes come with that transmission. And, and that but now we know not only changes the type of microbes that we grew up with, but that exposure has quite a bit to say about the type of diseases that you may be at risk. It does seem that there is an anti-allergic effect of dogs for babies that grow up with them at home. Mm. And I was surprised that there isn't this same influence with cats. Yes. Uh, And of course, it's not 100%. we, We don't know exactly what this may be. It is thought that the majority of cats are indoor species. And when they go out, they do so in a very limited way. And also the way they interact with us is not as direct um, and as constantly direct as the way dogs interact with us. Mm. Dogs go out all the time. They bring, you know, they get in the water, they go swimming. They, they are really good at, 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 you know, bringing dirty paws into the house. And they lick us every time they, we walk through the door. and yeah you just said lick so licking a baby as long as the dog is healthy is 
pretty okay, right? It's okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if a family doesn't have a pet, could a child receive similar microbial changes if they just occasionally interact with a friend's dog? That I don't know. I would imagine if that if the exposure is constant enough, yeah, there's probably some positive aspect, but I've never heard of a study that has uh, concluded that, so I wouldn't know for sure. I would imagine that if the exposure is is not just completely casual every now and then, but if it happens quite often, yeah. Yeah, oh, cool. Uh, so people who grow up on farms have a much lower risk of developing asthma than anyone else in Western societies. That was, to me, that was such a big sentence from your book. Can you please share more about that? It's true, and, and it gets, it's one of those studies that... Uh, uh, gets repeated every time it gets done in in different um, parts of, of the industrialized world. So um, uh, there's another study that came out after we published the book that was fascinating because they found that not only did they, did they confirmed that this farm effect uh, in terms of the prevention of allergies, but they found that homes that were not farms that had similar microbes to the farms themselves also had this protective effect. Really honing down this idea that it is the microbes or the exposures to microbes that are a lot more common in farms that are driving this protectiveness towards allergies. Hmm. Okay, so right before reading your book I read a few of David Perlmutter's books and I was very interested in the connection between the microbiome and autism which you also covered and I wondered if you could briefly talk about this. Yes and, and there's a few more things that have happened after we published the book in that um, in that field. We now understand that microbes have a lot of communication between the gut and the brain. So they produce substances that can travel through different routes to our brain and other aspects of our nervous system. So it is not surprising that just like how they change the way our immune system develops, they can also change the way our um, nervous system develops as well. And there were some epidemiological links that had been described between potentially changes of the microbiome and the and, and different um, and the autism spectrum disorder in, in particular. But of course, with epidemiological studies, you always have to take them with a grain of salt because these are really associative studies. It's really hard to know whether one thing is causing the other. It can always be the other way around. But there was a, a very neat clinical trial that was done and um, I think is Arizona State University where it was a small sample size, so a couple dozen um, kids with autism. And half of them were, actually don't quote me if it was half of them or if it was all of them. They were treated with, it may have been all of them, they were treated with um, fecal transfers. And just in a nutshell, what, what that is, a, a, a fecal transplant is exactly what it sounds. It is the, the stool from a donor that gets 
gets, of course, first tested to ensure that it doesn't have any any pathogens or any harmful microbes, and then goes through a very simple process. And then this same stool is then transferred to uh, a person that receives the, the transfer, uh, the recipient. And uh, the these autistic children received fecal transferred for a number of days. And uh, what was really interesting was that not only did they improved their gastrointestinal issues, which, by the way, are very common, are almost a feature in most autistic patients, but they also had improvements related to their behavior. And, and this was a critical study. Of course, it needs to be repeated. And I know there's now, because of that study, many other ones happening, at least in the United States, um, where, where now we're showing that changing the type of microbes in our gut can really change the, the, the severity and the course of a neurological disease. This is, of course, very paradigm-shifting, for, for the whole field of, of psychiatry. And it is now being tested not only for autistic um, disorders, but also for other neurological disorders as well, including Parkinson's disease, uh, including, I mean, many, many others, you, you name it. There's now this now um, idea that gut microbes can not only have a say in the development, but also the treatment of a disease is very important and, 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 and very in line of what is known as the gut-brain axis now, which I'm sure you read in those books that you were mentioning. Mm, yes. Yeah, it's so impressive <laughs> and, yeah, kind of mind-blowing. Could yeah. you share with us the studies done on mice regarding obesity? Yeah, and there's many stuff that, that, that has been done now because it's been now over a decade since those initial experiments. Um, it all started with a series of experiments that compared the, the, the amount of fat in mice that had microbes to mice that did not have microbes. These micro, these mice without microbes are, are quite um, special. They're called, they're called germ-free microbes. And as you can imagine, because we live in a microbial world, it takes a lot of technology to, to get them free of microbes and to keep them free of microbes. But mm -hmm. clearly, um, what they found was that the animals without microbes um, had differences in, in, in weight. And what was really interesting was that those differences uh, became came not apparent when you gave microbes to the, the mice, really showing that microbes can change the way um, we experience calorie intake, which is a very, very basic physiological mechanism. And so ever since then, of course, there's been a ton of studies. And, and yes, we now understand that changes to our microbes that, of course, are more a lot more common than being germ-free because nothing really exists in germ-free form. Mm. Um, they can they can have a, a say in, in obesity, for example. So now we understand that antibiotics, if you get a lot of antibiotics early on, 
uh, you are at a much higher risk of developing obesity in early childhood. And this is after controlling for other factors that we know will increase the risk of, of becoming obese, like being born to an obese family, for example. So even the, the effect um, um, after the effect is there after we control for, for genetic factors. And, and even dietary factors. So the, the way microbes function uh, can drive alterations at the level of our metabolism. And is there a similar disturbance to the microbiome relating to diabetes? Yes, as well. So diabetes is another metabolic disorder. And just like with obesity, there's going to be biological mechanisms or pathways that are shared between obesity and even diabetes. So there's there's um, there's a connection with, with diabetes, both diabetes type 1, which is an autoimmune disorder, as well as diabetes type 2. So there's intriguing connections. Hmm. So another standout sentence from your book, the early gut microbiota of children that later develop eczema is different and less diverse than that of control children and the microbiota of affected skin area is different than that of healthy skin to me this is just so fascinating what more can you share with us about eczema um for eczema yes so there's been changes to the microbiome both in the gut as well as the skin what's really interesting is that some of these changes have been detected even before the babies develop develop eczema providing this stronger evidence that it's not just that the microbes in that site are responding to the disease itself, but that they may be driving it instead. Hmm. So all of these conditions, allergies, asthma, eczema, obesity, diabetes, autism, they all show a lack of diversity in the microbiome and an absence or reduction in some key bacteria. So with regards to food allergies, a potential cause of that disturbance could be due to foods being introduced to the developing gut too early or possibly even too late, or that babies who were deficient in vitamin D are significantly more likely to develop food and respiratory allergies, and then there's antibiotics. But there must still be other potential environmental causes of these disturbances to the microbiome. Can you give us some examples? For sure. And there's many factors that will alter not only the microbes, but also the causes for those diseases that may not even related to microbes. So things like environmental pollution, that has been um, related to the increase of, of um, disease, disease risk for allergies, for asthma, but even for other diseases as well. Now, we understand that there may be some relationship with the microbiome there too, but some aspects of pollution could very well not be related to that, that microbiome. Um, diet is a huge one, as you mentioned, not only the time of, um, of introduction, but also the type of diet that we get mm-hmm. to, that, that we experience throughout infancy and life. And there's very strong connections between diet, the microbiome, and the risk for different diseases. Yeah. So the subtitle of your book, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World, immediately what springs to mind are things like antibacterial soaps, hand sanitizer, home cleaning sprays, uh, bleach, laundry powder, dishwashing liquid. What can you tell us about this? Like how, how clean is too clean? 
Um, it's interesting because, of course, we're under a pandemic now. So this discussion really <laughs> has to be put pandemic aside with, of course, the, the important caveat that we should consider the fact that we're under a pandemic. Um, yeah. So what I'm going to say only applies if we were not under the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. But yes, we over-sanitize the areas where we live. And one aspect that I find important to discuss um, is the aspect of hygiene. Hygiene is this concept. It's over a century, year old, and we understand it as the, the measures that help us prevent diseases. And there's many of them, probably the most important one being being washing our, our hands. And, and because it's so old, we've studied different hygiene measures and how important they are. So being hygienic is incredibly important. What we talk in the book uh, and has been studied by others as well is that there's many practices that are overly hygienic or hyper-hygienic, as we call them, that are not going to prevent or, or change the, 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 the prevention measures for infectious diseases. They're not going to make them more effective. Um, so they're not as needed as, as normal hygiene measures are. So, uh, yes, there's a lot of products now that are very much overkill. Having antibacterial components in your fabric you don't really need that unless you're going to wear the same fabric for three weeks. I guess if you're going to be doing a, a mountain expedition and, and that that is an issue, then yes, that 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 may be important. For for everyday people, uh, we tend to really overuse uh, th- these types of, of measures that are really not necessary. And, and of course, um, antibacterial soap and antibacterial gels will fall in that category too, except that right now we we really need them because we're under a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned yeah before about hygiene. Do you have like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Do you have an, a recommended sort of guide for how often we should be washing our children every day, every second day? There's really not a good science about that. So it, it would be not possible for me to answer that question. Had there been good studies showing that, you know, washing ourselves a little bit less is associated to some sort of health improvement, yeah, I'll be comfortable in giving that, but there's really nothing out there. So I don't know is the right answer. Yeah. So, okay, so let's talk about uh, nutrition. I want to see if my uh, very simplified understanding is correct. Uh, my rule of thumb is to eliminate or at least reduce these uh, these three things in our diet. So highly processed and refined foods like things in packets and plastic or cans, um, extracted uh, polyunsaturated fats and hydrogenated fats like margarines and vegetable oils, and sugars including like refined carbohydrates. So that would put something like maybe French fries right at the top of the list for foods that really feed the bad bacteria. How close am I to the mark with this? I think you're pretty spot on. Um, oh, cool. Processed foods, foods that are high in sugars and fats, that, that is the main things that 
you know, nutritionists have been talking to us about for decades, and, and it continues to be the same. And, and this new microbiome science does not change that. It just adds new scientific information or new evidence that microbes are part of the creation of, of you know, between food, ourselves, and a healthy weight and health in general. Mm-hmm. So what sort of foods do you recommend that we try to eat then? Um, I mean, highly varied diets. That's one of the things Mm -hmm. that that nutritionists and and large nutritional studies have recommended for a while. One that is high in um, vegetables and fruits and carbohydrates that are not in the refined form. So think whole grain uh, derivatives in every form and uh, also protein whether it is vegetarian or or not um, so it is is very much the same recommendations or the, the, yeah the same recommendations that uh, the field of nutrition have been giving us at least for the pa- past decade or two one aspect and and uh, nutritionists have been also <laughs> telling us about this is our intake of fiber Fiber is incredibly important for gut health. And now we understand. I mean, fiber really means microbe food. We cannot digest fiber, but microbes can. So it is It is true. It is the true prebiotic that we need to eat um, more of, a lot more of, because one of the features of uh, Western diets is its depletion of fiber. Hmm. I did not realize that we did not digest fiber, that it was the <laughs> microbes that did that. Yeah, we can't. We don't have the right enzymes for it. Yeah. Okay, so I read conflicting reports on things like caffeine and alcohol. Can you tell us what effects they have on the microbiome? Um, you're right. There are conflicting. There's not enough good <laughs> science to, to conclude. I cannot tell you one way or the other, so I don't know. It's another good answer there. Okay, thanks. Okay, and a key part of uh, nutrition would be something like natural probiotics, so fermented foods and drinks. But am I correct in understanding that the store-bought products are heat-treated and therefore have lost their bacterial benefits? Some of them are. Some of them are not. Um, So you just have to see. And the nice thing is that they do have to at least here, they they do have to be truthful about that. So from the packaging, you can tell whether it has live microorganisms or not. There's a lot of those foods, though, that you can have in your own house, though. You can make yourself, whether it is um, sourdough for bread or, you know, kombucha or whether you have your own box for kefir. There's a lot of stuff that you can do for for, um, fermented foods from Mm. your home. Yeah. So is there any truth to if you're fermenting or brewing them in your own home, like sourdough, pickled foods, fermented drinks, you're growing bacteria that are more familiar to you than if they're produced elsewhere? I actually don't think so, because this bacteria that will grow in the ferments themselves are, except for the yeast, they're not really your own bacteria. They're the microbes that come from the plants themselves or from the food product themselves mixed with other environmental bacteria. But for the most part, those ferments are um, arise from, from, from the food product themselves. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be really surprised if that were true. Yeah. 
So, yeah, you mentioned kombucha before, which is pretty popular right now. I'm a little suspicious of its efficacy as a probiotic when it contains uh, some sugar. Can you talk about that? Yes, of course. Yeah, it does have lots of things have sugars. I mean, that doesn't that would not prevent it from from having probiotics. Uh, microbes grow on on sugar, so so you one wouldn't eliminate the other. Whether it's of course healthy or not, it's uh, it's a different discussion. I would say kombucha. It's a it's a really good fermented food. I wouldn't have four glasses of kombucha a day because that's a ton of sugar, as you just said. Yeah. But probably in, in small amounts, it's pretty healthy. I'm, I'm a big proponent of fermented foods, and it, it, there's good there's good data, uh, not necessarily from the microbiome point of view, but from the nutritional fields that um, have many nutritionists right now recommended more fermented foods. Cool. So... In my uh, 14 years of working with children, whenever the children in my care have gotten sick, it's a guarantee that I eventually end up getting it too. But for the past six months, I've been brewing my own kvass, uh, which is just a fermented drink with some beetroot or seasonal fruit and some salt and yeast. And in that time, my kids have had three or four colds and I haven't gotten sick or have just gotten like very mild symptoms. So... Yeah, I say I haven't been sick, but it's not technically true because I had food poisoning a couple of weeks ago. And knowing that I had this interview coming up, I keep wondering how food poisoning affects the microbiome. It does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, But again, for the most part, unless it's a very severe form that lasts for a long, long, long time. I'm talking, you know, weeks. So there's this type of infection of of gut infection known as a C. diff infection caused by a pretty nasty bug called Clostridium difficile. That one can, in some people, get really nasty and then you get it, it goes away, it comes back after a few months. You almost never get rid of it. So in that case, the consequences to your microbiome can be everlasting. For most bouts of gastroenteritis, you bounce back to what you were before. Okay. So you're after what, if you're only sick for a day or two, your microbiome replenishes itself in that short time? Yeah, and one of the things that they recommend is that you slowly uh, go back to your normal diet, which most people do. Yeah, cool. So I have just a couple of quick questions left. The first is the five-second rule. Is there any science behind it? No, I don't think so. Um, no, it's never made sense to me. And of course, there's really no studies behind it. What, what really makes sense is where your food falls down. Mm-hmm. So if... Of course, if you don't know when the food has fallen down, just by mere logic, you shouldn't pick it up because uh, it could have been for it could have been there for for a long, long time. But basically, if something falls on the ground in your house or in the grandparents' house or somewhere where you know who, who's been there, um, then it doesn't really matter if it's been a second or ten seconds or a couple of minutes. Odds are, it's gonna be fine. Yeah. <laughs> But if it falls in an area that is heavily um, used by other people, you just don't want to eat it, whether it was half a millisecond or not. Um, and the, the fact is that 
we suffer from that diseases carried by other humans. And when there's a lot more humans, the risk of these diseases increase. So you just don't want to be picking up stuff from the ground if you are at a metro station or at an airport. And of course, of course, at a hospital, even in a school, like it's not a good practice to do it or in a, in a shopping mall where, where there's a lot of people because you just don't know. Hmm. And so going back to breastfeeding quickly, when a baby breastfeeds, there will be microbes from the contact with the mother's skin. So do mothers need to clean their nipples before feeding their babies? No, not at all. And there's really neat developments in this area. So now we know that breast milk comes with their own microbes. So inside the breast, there is a microbiome. We still don't know where this microbiome comes from. Most people think that it comes from um, microbes from the mom's skin mixed with the baby's mouth microbes. But then because there's milk being produced inside of the breast, they crawl inside and they're able to kind of stay there for a while. And babies get quite a bit of, of, of these loads of microbes every time that they eat. And this is quite often, as you know. Mm. So breast milk is another source not only of the HMOs that we were talking about before, but of microbes themselves. So no, people, unless they, of course, have a, an infection, they really shouldn't be cleaning their breasts. Yeah. This question uh, may show my naivety, but if microbes are literally, literally everywhere, including in the air, how can rooms, I'm thinking specifically of hospital surgical rooms, how can they really be sterile? Is it possible to sterilize air? <laughs> Well, no, it is possible to sterilize air. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it is very hard to maintain it sterile yeah. for a long, for, for more than, a, you know, a, a millisecond. So surgical rooms are not 100% sterile, but they are much, much, much cleaner than any other room anywhere else because all the surfaces get wiped clean with really strong antiseptics all the time and people really clean themselves up before they go in and they get dressed in completely sterile gowns and fabric. So the risk of transmitting something in those conditions is, is very, very low Yeah, compared to any other environment. Mm -hmm. So my, my kids both have a natural inclination to lick or suck on their minor wounds like grazes and small cuts. Is there something special, microbially speaking, that their saliva is doing to their wounds? Uh, no, that's an interesting one because that happens, but not that we know. Okay. No, mm -hmm. not that we know. Yeah. I mean, not regarding microbes, at least. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this last question is quite uh, taboo, but it's one I've wanted to ask a microbiologist for a long time. So a child who picks their nose and eats it, is this an effective method of strengthening the immune system? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't think so. If it was an effective method, probably more kids would do it. I, I don't know, to tell you the truth. They're just, I have not seen a study. I don't know. I don't think it's critical. Otherwise, we would do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but is it, okay, then from the opposite side, do you know if it's harmful? Not that I know of, no. Okay. No. So I will put uh, links in the show notes to your book, Let the Meat Dirt, and to the Arietta Lab website. Is there anywhere else people can go to learn more about what we've talked about today or to get in contact with you? No, I think that the Let the Meat Dirt website, and it is letthemeatdirt.com, mm -hmm. uh, there's a 
great array of resources, not only, you know, places to, to find the book, that, that's great and all, but, but just um, free uh, resources with more information about this. And also, we produced a documentary that is also called Let the Meat Dirt, and mm. there's information on how to access that film. Oh, cool. And so you were saying with the resources, is that does that include things like uh, you were saying there were studies that have been done since you published the book? Would that include those sort of things? There's some of them there as well, yeah. mm-hmm. but there are news articles, which in many cases are more, you know, are, are, are better directed to the public yeah. um, that we find quite interesting too. And we try to also share news or, or important studies through social media and uh, we don't have Instagram but we have Facebook and Twitter. Great okay yeah I'll put all of that on thank you. Um, (laughs) So yeah Claire wow we have covered so much in this interview I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and share your knowledge with us today thank you. No worries thank you for the invitation it was very enjoyable. (laughs) So my final question for you to end on is If the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? I would say that we ought to be critical and to think critically about, you know, general, to maintain critical thinking because that will eventually develop more knowledge. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.